Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Wherever you may be, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is Special Briefing. I'm Bill Glaskell from the Volcker Alliance, and I'm here today with my co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello, good morning, and good afternoon for evening to all our guests. Thanks, Susan. And we're coming to you in another week of high drama over the fate of President Joe Biden's ambitious plan for the U.S. economy. Will we see a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill? a $2 trillion Build Back America program, or more or less? Or will Congress fail to agree on anything more than the roughly 30% of GDP that they've already pumped into the economy since COVID-19 arrived? Great mystery, great panel to discuss all kinds of angles today. With us today on our expert panel is Apollo Global Management's Torsten Slook, who is going to look at the macro view and prospects for inflation. Andy Howitt from the New York Fed, who's going to talk about the payoff from infrastructure investment and the risk to the economy and the beauty market if this doesn't come to pass. From the West Coast, Carolyn Coleman of the League of California Cities, fresh from their annual conference with 1,700 of her closest friends, she's going to tell us what the Golden State's municipalities are looking for Congress to deliver and maybe what they've already spent or plan to spend out of their ARPA allocations. And from the Washington Post, White House reporter Annie Linsky, who's on page one of the post today, she's going to have the latest, latest state of play on infrastructure, build back better, and of course, those two reluctant Senate Democrats, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, and what they all mean to the Biden program. Now, before we dive in, just a couple of housekeeping details. All audience members' cameras are turned off and your mics are on mute. We've taken questions in advance. That's our usual practice. And we'll have plenty of time for discussion later in the session. We'll have contact info for Susan, me, and all the panelists at the end of the special briefing. And the whole program will be archived and available in a few hours on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And one last thing, a special word of thanks to the Century Foundation for its generous support of this program, along with the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR, of course. So now let's get the show rolling. Torsten Slok, I mentioned, is chief economist at Apollo. He sent out a note today showing how Americans' household and corporate savings actually doubled to the pandemic. It looks like it's at a record or at least the highest percentage of GDP since 1950. But at the same time, we have bottlenecks all over the world, jam ports, not enough workers, the chips aren't making it into the cars. So, Torsten, put all this together for you. What does all this mean? And if we get an infrastructure bill on top of all, all of this, what's going on? Thanks so much, Bill, and thanks so much, Susan, for having me. Yeah, so just to set the stage for our discussion, just uh, let me try in a few words to summarize at least how I look at the economy at the moment. We are, of course, leaving the pandemic behind. And leaving the pandemic behind means that more people have been flying on airplanes, more people have been going to restaurants, more people have been staying at hotels. So in that sense, we should expect to see the data for the economy generally get better and better as we look ahead over the coming quarters. 
for quite some time, the goods part of the economy and the goods sector and goods consumption, meaning buying of things online and shopping of things, so to speak, that you can touch and, and bring home in your car, has been doing incredibly well. But what we're still waiting for is more growth in services, more normalization in services. We are approaching more normal levels, but we're not back to the level of consumption in services that we were at before the pandemic came around. So in that sense, the prospects for growth in the economy continue to be quite bright because the pandemic is easing and the virus is subsiding and all that should argue for growth being better over, again, the coming quarters. Now, unfortunately, more recently, we now have three new risks that are appearing on the horizon. And those risks are exactly as you just mentioned, Bill, we have some problems with the supply chain. Unfortunately, that's creating quite a significant increase in transportation costs. The cost of transporting goods by container, by truck, by train, by air, essentially at the highest levels that they've been for decades. In other words, the crunch that we're seeing in the supply chain is unfortunately rather serious because the cost of production simply going up and the cost of transporting goods, including from Asia to the US and Asia to Europe, continue to go up. The second risk that we are seeing at the moment is that unfortunately at the same time, we also have quite a significant increase in energy prices. This is partly because of some of the problems in the supply chain, but energy prices are also going up for other reasons, especially in Europe, that also have to do with idiosyncratic stories about what's going on with the inventory of natural gas in particular, but broadly speaking, an imbalance between the economy opening, creating more demand for energy, and simply not being able to produce enough energy at the same time and not having enough inventory of energy. So that's pushing upward pressure on energy prices also. And the third and final problem that we have at the moment, more broadly speaking, is that labor costs are going up. And that's not to discuss whether that's necessarily, I mean, good or bad in the sense that it's good that incomes go up and then consumers have more money to spend. But the challenge could be that if labor cost and inflation goes up too quickly, then it can become a problem in particular for financial markets and for the Federal Reserve, which is why the Federal Reserve is beginning to move to the exit. So in summary, the pandemic is further and further behind us. Things are looking better. But there are these three risks that unfortunately all intensifying with, again, higher supply chain problems and higher costs for transportation, higher energy costs and higher labor costs. And those things, unfortunately, very simply put, means higher inflation, lower margins. And that's also, therefore, ultimately something that we are studying and thinking hard about at the moment. What are the implications for the overall? Are these risks enough to derail the recovery now that we are leaving the virus behind? So in summary, there are bright skies and clear skies ahead of us, and the outlook is still reasonably solid. But there is a cloud that's hanging in front of us where it could start to rain, either because of the problems from energy, from supply chain, or labor costs going up. So still, the consensus is reasonably optimistic. The Fed is moving to the exit. But in summary, Bill, the answer to your question is that the economy is looking better than it's done for several quarters. But there are some new risks that we all need to monitor very carefully. So with that, let me turn it back to you, Bill. Well, thanks, Torsten. And hold that thought for the discussion because we want to come back and given our orientation towards states and municipalities, what this means for states, counties, cities, and in terms of tax revenue, sales tax, income taxes, and also what the risks are out there. So hold that. We'll be back to this in a few minutes. 
continuing on the, the macro front is Andy Howitt, my friend from the New York Fed. Andy is senior vice president and policy leader for household and regional in the research and statistics group down on Liberty Street. Andy has done a lot of work on the returns to the economy of infrastructure investment. We're looking at either a trillion dollars or a multiple of that or zero. So Andy, tell us about the, the short and long-term returns and the short and long-term risks that you're seeing. Thanks, Bill. And um, thanks, everyone, for being here. And thanks to the Volcker Alliance and the Penn IUR for inviting me to participate in this event. So first thing I need to say is that everything I say this morning is going to reflect my own views and not necessarily those of the New York Federal Reserve. So I want to talk about three things this morning, three main points. First, I want to talk sort of in general terms about the Infrastructure and Jobs Act and the kind of investments it makes and what we can say about the returns to those kinds of investments. I want to follow up on something that Torsten emphasized about supply chains. And then I want to talk a little bit more broadly about how states in particular, but the state and local sector more generally, are doing in fiscal terms. So let's start with the components of the plan and what we might expect as sort of the long-term payoffs to the plan. So the first thing I should say is that there's surprisingly little consensus among economists about how returns to new infrastructure investments shake out, how big they are. And that's a sort of a general statement. And then I think there are particular reasons to be even more uncertain when we talk about the particular plan that's being envisioned here. Now, in general terms, sort of generic program of infrastructure investment, if this were such a thing, if there were such a thing of this size, about a trillion dollars, would predict something like a 0.2% or a 0.15% increase in GDP by 2031. So that would mean that the productive capacity of the economy would increase enough so that we would be something like 0.2% of GDP higher by 2031. And that's based on the size of the program, as I mentioned, and the way it's financed this time around and the historical experiences of these kinds of investments. So let's break that down a little bit with respect to finance. So one important fact I want to get on the table is that there's a big discussion about how this has really got a $550 billion impact on net spending. So there's $550 billion in new spending, but it's actually more than that in new investment because some of the financing comes from a shift of other forms of spending, like unspent emergency relief benefits and strengthened tax enforcement into infrastructure. So that's an important fact because this is a change in the composition of the way the, the spending of the federal government is going and it, it increasingly into investment as opposed to what you might think of as more consumption spending. Now, how much net spending will that mean? Well, that's a hard question. A lot of the money will go to state and local governments to spend. And for every dollar spent by the federal government uh, in infrastructure, there's a little bit of an offset by state and local governments. They tend to draw back on spending a little bit. So it'll be slightly less than a trillion dollars in net new spending, most likely by the end. We can come back to that. Now, the major components of the plan are very different from what we think of as a lot of other interest in a lot of other infrastructure plans. And in particular, many of the aspects of this plan are emphasizing repairing infrastructure versus building new infrastructure or reducing uncertainty by increasing safety or increasing resilience to climate change. This is a different kind of infrastructure package in that way. In many ways, it's intended to reduce risk reduce the risk that I will break my axle running into a pothole, or that the bridge that I go over on my way to work will collapse, or that 
the, my road will flood because of climate. So there's a tremendous amount of reduction of uncertainty in this plan that's really different from the previous plans that we've seen from previous administrations. Now, that's not all that's in the plan. There is um, new money for, for example, renewable transmission, renewable energy transmission and transmission lines for broadband. And these are more in the traditional infrastructure investment type things, I think. So one of the conclusions that I draw from all of this is that it's going to be difficult to figure out exactly what the impact of this particular plan is going to be, because so much of it is about reducing risk. And I want to just emphasize one thing, and that is that reducing risk, of course, is an important thing to do in the economy, and it has payoffs that might not show up directly in gross domestic product, but nonetheless are very real. So second major topic, supply shortages and supply bottlenecks. So construction employment, which would be an important part of this plan, is actually down about 200,000 from its pre-pandemic level as of last month. You would think that would suggest that there's excess capacity in construction, but it turns out that job openings in construction are way up. They're up about 40,000 to about 350,000. So what does that suggest? Well, that suggests that the labor market might be a little tighter than the total employment numbers suggest when it comes to construction jobs. A second major component here is going to be construction materials. And the prices of construction materials, like many other things, as Torsten mentioned, are up quite a lot. Now, the PPI for construction materials producer price index is up about 36% from February of 2020. So that's a big increase. And that means that these additional dollars are slated to come into an economy which is currently very tight. Now, I work at the Federal Reserve, so I read what Jay Powell says, and I am a believer that these supply bottlenecks are likely to have abated by the time that most of this money comes to the market. But nonetheless, these are important things to keep in mind in the short run in terms of the impact that this money will have. Finally, I want to talk about the state and local sector as a whole. A couple of points here. First of all, the overall revenue position of the sector has been quite strong. States in particular have seen revenues growing and uh, federal aid has been a substantial contributor there. The second thing that I want to point out is that the municipal market where states would borrow in order to finance these kinds of investments in many cases has been very favorable to borrowers over the last several months, in fact, almost a year now. Early on in the crisis, there was a huge spike in yields and the market essentially froze in the spring of 2020. But a general market healing, in part, I would like to think, brought on by Federal Reserve actions, helped to bring the market back to much more normal levels. And now yields are actually at quite low levels. And so the conditions are good for, I think, state and local governments to be able to take advantage of the money that might be coming their way and the opportunities for new investments. So let me stop there and hand it back to, I believe, Susan. Thank you so much, Andy. Your presentation brings up a number of interesting questions, as does Torsten's. We'll come back to those. But now it's my pleasure to introduce Carolyn Coleman, who is the executive director and CEO of the League of California Cities, who is on the front lines of the difficulties in the increased risk and supply chain and how cities and states are responding to these and other challenges. Carolyn, please go ahead. 
Susan, thank you so much. And thank you to the Volcker Alliance and Penn UIR for inviting me to be a part of today's conversation. And thank all of you for joining us so early in the morning out here on, on the West Coast. I can't talk a lot about the state of play without stepping back a little bit and talking about where we've been because it so influences what's happening with California cities today. Um, truly, the last year and a half has been an incredible roller coaster for our cities. To protect the health and the safety of our residents, we shut down our local economies. And since our cities and our local governments rely so heavily on sales taxes and transient-oriented occupancy taxes, we literally saw our, our revenues fall off a cliff with the loss of billions of dollars of revenues used to fund important city services. And because our cities don't have the luxury of running a deficit, California cities, in order to balance their budgets, implemented deep furloughs, freezes, and in some cases, cuts to balance their budgets. And it shouldn't be lost on us that the pandemic's impacts because of those cuts also impacted our ability to deliver the bread and butter city services that we all know so well, police and fire response, city planning, picking up trash, fixing our roads, and so much more. But even before the pandemic disrupted our local economies, cities had significant need for greater infrastructure investment. And truly, I think we can all agree that the pandemic laid even more bare the need for greater investment in infrastructure in our cities, and especially true today if we're going to accelerate recovery from the pandemic. Fortunately, the ARPA dollars that our cities received will go a long way to helping us move forward with recovery and rebuilding. Under ARPA, California cities were allocated $8 billion in direct aid. And this has unlocked a tremendous capacity for rebuilding, reimagining, and expanding the services that our residents need today. The pandemic also put a large spotlight on the value of local government services and also on the gaps still needed to be addressed to ensure that all can thrive. Now, it is clear from the early reports that we are receiving from our cities on how they're using their ARPA dollars that local officials and cities are being bold by addressing the most difficult challenges they are facing today, a very practical approach. This means they are taking steps to advance public health, to rebuild our main street businesses, tackling some systemic inequities in our systems, and ensuring, importantly, that city finances are sustainable so we can continue to provide the services. And I think our speakers that went before me talked about the pace of recovery. And so it's important that we be able to align the recovery of our city budgets with the pace of that recovery. Let me talk a little bit about how cities are investing their ARPA dollars a little more specifically. In response to, as we know, so many of our main street businesses were impacted by the pandemic and the closures, and so many of our nonprofits who are important partners in the local sector in terms of delivering services were impacted. Because of that, cities are using some of their ARPA dollars to help shore up, sustain, and help reopen some of those local businesses. They're also responding to calls for social justice, building up crisis response teams to reduce conflict and help reimagine the delivery of some of our public safety services. And of course, they are also using some of the ARPA dollars to reward the heroics, really, of 
essential workers in our communities, folks like our grocery store workers and our healthcare workers. We all know, though, that with the presence of the Delta variant, that the fight against COVID-19 is not over in our cities. That's why cities are putting also some of their ARPA funds to work, supporting contract tracing, vaccination clinics, and in some cases, mandating vaccinations themselves for their city employees and enforcing a number of other mandates to protect the health and safety of our residents. I mentioned earlier that cities are using some of their dollars to address the systemic inequities and challenges in our communities. I'm going to talk a little bit about broadband access. And when I talk about broadband access, it's not only high quality, affordable internet access, but it's also devices that can be used. And this is one of the most glaring equity issues that's been facing our California communities, not just in our rural areas, but also in our suburban and our urban areas. Accelerating the deployment of reliable, affordable internet access is a high priority for our cities and has been for a number of years. And the consensus around the state on the need to address this gap, I tell you, has been one of the very bright spots with the state enacting earlier this year a $6 billion broadband package, the country's largest, to help close the digital divide. This bill will help prioritize the construction of networks in unserved and underserved areas. Cities are also using their ARPA dollars to invest in short-term and permanent supportive housing needs in our communities. Again, some of these existed pre-pandemic, but it was certainly exacerbated during the pandemic, and we're leveraging the ARPA dollars with other federal resources to keep our residents safe and housed. They're also committing millions of dollars to catalyze the construction of low-income and moderate-income housing projects. But importantly, because the economy has not returned to its pre-pandemic levels, um, cities are also focused on rebuilding budget resiliency. As noted by the U.S. Treasury in April 2021, state, local, and tribal government employment had fallen by more than a million jobs compared to pre-pandemic levels. And as of September 2021, public sector employment is still approximately 800,000 jobs lower than prior to the pandemic. So again, as we heard from some of the earlier speakers, we're nowhere near back to our pre-pandemic levels. I mentioned earlier that cities also have experienced these cuts and are slowly working their way back to pre-pandemic service levels. Truly, the ARPA funds will not close all the gaps our cities have, but it does give them a real fighting chance to accelerate, recover, and regain what we lost. But as good as ARPA, the ARPA funds are, and they certainly, as they are invested in our communities over the next several years, they give us a fighting chance. There's still the need that existed pre-pandemic for greater federal investment in our infrastructure. By that, I mean in our streets and our roads, our water and our broadband networks, as well as our human infrastructure, our workforce. I want to focus the remainder of my remarks not on all of those infrastructure needs, but I want to focus on transportation. But I would say that certainly so goes transportation. It applies as well to the other areas. I appreciate the comments earlier about, you know, addressing our transportation infrastructure needs across the country and in our communities is really becoming a public safety issue. I'll tell you, in California, on a scale of a zero to 100, fail to excellent, 
the statewide average condition of our local streets and roads is 66, meaning they're at risk. That's an improvement because we've made some new investments in infrastructure, transportation infrastructure in California. That's an improvement in the last couple years of one percentage point. We have a long way to go to get in good condition. And these results are further reinforced by the American Society of Civil Engineers report, which gives California roads a C minus grade. The 2020 report estimates the needs of the local transportation infrastructure at $118 billion over the next 10 years. With our SB1 funding, a historic transportation infrastructure package that went into effect in California several years ago, we'll get 55 billion of the dollars of that $118 billion needed over the next 10 years. But that leaves a significant shortfall still of $64 billion. Aging infrastructure, rising construction costs, and new regulatory requirements have all contributed to a significant funding shortfall for our transportation network. Other factors such as heavier vehicles, increasing traffic, the need to accommodate transit, bicyclists, pedestrians, and electric vehicles have put increased demands on our transportation infrastructure. All of these are reasons why cities are supporting the Biden infrastructure package. It's not only about public safety, but it's essential to our city's recovery from the pandemic and to our ability to really build back better. I look forward, Susan and Bill, to the questions later. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Carolyn Coleman, your comments have been very helpful in terms of not only the utility of ARPA for your cities and for California as a state, but also looking forward to the needed investment, the infrastructure that we have in California and throughout the country is now decades old and in need of great repair. So that's forward looking to the two bills that are now being debated, discussed throughout the nation. And Annie Linsky, who is the White House reporter of Washington Post is following these discussions carefully and can enlighten us as to where we are. Please go ahead, Annie. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good to see both of you. I'm uh, coming to you from the newsroom of the Washington Post, which is nice. It's uh, one of my first days back here. I do wish I had a crystal ball to say exactly what would happen at the end of the day here, but there's a lot of moving parts in Washington today. The sense is that there is a a deal that's coming into focus with Joe Biden's legislative agenda. And to step back for a second, Biden's legislative agenda appeared to be close to um, having a vote about um, at the end of last month. And it was the end of the day, it was pulled from the House floor. This time is different. There are three major dates coming up that serve essentially as a deadline that are focusing lawmakers in Washington in a way that was not true before. So just to emphasize that the the sort of pressure on lawmakers has changed. And those three dates come in quick succession, October 31st, federal highway money runs out if legislation is not passed. November 1st, the president will be standing 
shoulder to shoulder with a hundred other world leaders in Glasgow, hoping to deliver his climate change agenda and lead the world on an issue that he cares deeply about. His climate agenda is wrapped into these two pieces of legislation, and he does not want to go to Glasgow empty handed. He said as much in private meetings that he's been holding this week. And then the next one is November 2nd, when Terry McAuliffe is up for election in Virginia. And that gubernatorial race in Virginia has become very much a proxy for the Democrats' agenda. So these three deadlines are making this a, a very real moment in Washington, unlike some of the other kind of fake deadlines. My colleagues and I reported on the front page of the paper today that Joe Biden's strategy has shifted quite a bit. Lawmakers have been had been saying for months that they'd been meeting with Biden and he would just listen to them about what they wanted in the legislation. What has changed this week is the president has begun to say, okay, I've done a lot of listening and this is probably what's going to be in the bill. This is what's not going to be in the bill. And beginning to pitch them on this is what the outline I expect there to be. And so, for example, you know, we reported today that Biden is probably not going to include a, a long promised two years of free community college. That's appears to be dropping out of the bill. A big piece of his climate agenda is probably dropping out of the bill, a clean energy standard, child tax credit, which Biden has been talking about for all year. That is probably only going to be extended for one year rather than a permanent extension. And there's also talk about paid family leave shrinking a little bit. So this is a, a shrinking agenda for sure. You know, some reporting that, you know, the White House has already beginning to talk about it, even if it's a shrinking agenda, the numbers are still extremely large. I mean, you're you're talking about potentially, if you put the two bills together, you could still have three to $4 trillion in new spending, kind of depending on what happens at the end of the day. So as this kind of outline is gelling, we have heard that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had told lawmakers to expect to come up with a, sort of a top line number and a framework of for what will be in this piece of legislation by the end of the day. There's been some reporting this morning that that date is slipping a little bit and might be the end of the week, which in Washington can either be Friday or Saturday. But there is a sense that there's going to be some kind of movement and some kind of big picture deal that we will be able to see the outlines of, not the details, not the legislative language, that would come much later. And I guess the last thing I would say is that this is policy, but this is also politics. And politics is, of course, people. Sort of two senators who have held an enormous amount of sway in this process are, of course, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema, the new senator from Arizona. And the reporting that we're tracking right now is that the White House is focusing more on isolating cinema and, and have, cutting some kind of deal with Senator Manchin. Of course, you know, all of this can be shifting moment to moment here, but cinema has been a real conundrum for the White House. She's been a lot harder to read. Manchin, of course, comes from a red state. Trump won West Virginia by more than 30 points and Imagine a Democrat, you know, has, has also won that state. So he needs to be quite in touch with the conservatives in his state in order to win. And the White House gets that. Cinema, of course, comes from Arizona, a state that Biden won. So it's been more confusing to the White House as to why she would sort of present herself as such an obstacle to his agenda, which she has. There's been some sort of new reporting overnight that the 
White House may be kind of pulling back a little bit on both the corporate and individual tax hikes sort of at her behest. These are things that she has been skeptical of. And of course, if the package is shrinking, you need less pay-fors. One thing I would say to remember about cinema, and I think this gets forgotten a lot, is that she was a negotiator for the infrastructure piece of this legislation. And the infrastructure piece and the sort of social safety net piece, also sort of called the Build Back Better piece, they are going to move in tandem. And it, it is hard to imagine, you know, putting so much work into something as she did on the infrastructure piece and let it all blow up. But she also does see herself as, as somebody who's quite similar to another Arizona Senator, John McCain. Every profile you'll read of her includes her view of herself that she wants to play that role as a maverick who's an independent and standing up for you know, what she sees as, as right. So this is a moment where Democrats do wonder if she would be willing to kind of blow up the Democratic agenda, much the way, you know, McCain did back at, you know, when Trump was president, the Republicans were on the cusp of rolling back the Affordable Care Act, which has been a longtime goal of the Republican Party. They almost did it. John McCain stood in the way. And right now, Democrats are on the cusp of passing a massive, historically large piece of legislation. You know, even if it is reduced in size, it's still going to be a huge down payment on their agenda. And there is one person who could stand in the way, and that would be Kristen Sinema. Well, thank you so much, Annie. That's there's plenty of room left for questions on that. And I realize you might want to check your phone between now and question time because things may have changed 180 degrees, if, if not more. So everybody stay tuned. I want to remind you all that you're tuned in to special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. It's on both of our respective websites and all of the archived versions of special briefing. There's about 24 or so of them are available to you there as well. You're all waiting for question period, and let's not delay anymore. We certainly have a lot, long-term and short-term. Susan, why don't you kick off the questions, if you would? Yes, and I have a, a general question for everyone, but starting with Annie Linsky, and then our two economists, please, and then Carolyn View from California. And you ended with the point that these are historically large legislations with incredible ambitions for repairing what's needed to repair, as well as building back better and setting us on a future for growth. But it is a moment of time, as our two economists have pointed to, of some uncertainty in the economy. So Annie, first of all to you, is this part of Kristen Sinema's difficulty in getting her arms around this in terms of the large pay-fors and the potential effects on the economy. Is that part of what's going here? And then back to Torsten and then Andy on, well, uh, what about the supply chain limitations and what are the impacts potentially on inflation and growth short and long run of these combined bills? And then Carolyn, please, what do we lose? So let's start, please, Annie. You know, you're absolutely right. Senator Sinema has said that she believes the legislative package is too large and needs to be smaller. It's been a bit frustrating to figure out exactly what that number is. We don't know what it is publicly, but we do know that President Biden has spent hours and hours meeting face to face with 
Senator Sinema. And so, you know, the implication is that the White House and President Biden knows what her limits are, even if we in the public are not entirely certain of that number. So I think that's certainly true. And I would say that I, I think it's a good point that the Biden administration is on the cusp of potentially, you know, injecting trillions of additional spending into the economy at a moment where the White House is also quite concerned about inflation. It is a topic that comes up frequently. They worry about it as a sort of existential threat in a way that they haven't worried about other kind of news issues that have come up and dominated the headlines. You know, I've talked to top administration officials who said, look, this is something, inflation, if this is a problem next year, and certainly three years from now, that's going to pose a very deep political problem for them. Their argument is that this legislation will drive down costs on healthcare and housing, which are what they see as drivers of inflation. But I'd be interested to see, you know, what the economists on this panel believe that argument is worth. Thank you, Annie. Torsten? Just to follow up on that, I mean, uh, if you look at the University of Michigan has a consumer confidence survey where they exactly ask people, what are you worried about at the moment? And one thing that has been somewhat intriguing is that the consumption is rebounding after the virus. Uh, people are going out more. As I mentioned, they're going more to restaurants. They're flying more. They're staying in hotels more. They still have significant increases in the numbers for goods consumption. But what is really unusual is that at the same time, we've actually seen consumer confidence go down in the last several months. And one very important reason for that is that when you look at the details of why is it that consumers are consuming a lot, but they're now getting more worried about the outlook, well, what people respond to, not only University of Michigan, also the conference board, is that they are quite worried about home prices being high. They're quite worried about car prices being high. They're also quite worried about gas prices being high. So in some sense, uh, the challenge really in the current situation is that the price of many goods have gone up, including homes, so much that consumers are beginning to worry about the levels of prices. And that's not even inflation alone. That's just the fact that things have become so expensive. And this then, of course, opens up debates about, well, what does that mean then for wage increases? What does that mean for the spiral between prices and wages? And is there a risk that we could transition, therefore, from a more temporary inflation problem that was driven more by COVID and the virus to now potentially risking having a more permanent inflation problem, which is, of course, what we all in financial markets spend so much time on thinking about and talking about. And Jay Powell has clearly taking the view so far that it's all temporary. But the risks are that if we transition to a more permanent inflation problem, as Annie was saying, then that would certainly be a very significant issue in particular from my chair for financial markets, but certainly also for the broader economic outlook. Can I just interject a question just to follow on that, Torsten? This actually comes from a longtime friend of mine at Morgan Stanley, who has been around the market for quite a while and wonders what you're saying is, so are we looking at a risk now of a comparison of the, of the late 60s and 1970s with a buildup in inflation, a market break, and then finally leading up to Paul Volcker coming in and stamping out inflation rather decisively? That's a really, really good question. So that's not my base case scenario, but I think that we need to take into account that the probability of that scenario playing out has increased so another way of saying that is that if I look at the level of treasury rates, meaning long-term interest rates on U.S. government bonds, are very, very, very low by all measures, by historical standards, and in particular taking into account that inflation today on core and headline inflation is 4 and 5%, and the goal for the Fed is to keep inflation at 2 So that's why, Bill, to your question, the risk really is that so far, 
financial markets, including myself, we are all convinced that this is just a temporary problem. The supply chain problems will get resolved. The energy problems will get resolved. Wages is a little bit more tricky because that problem could potentially last a little bit longer. But generally speaking, there is a solution to these problems that we are facing on the inflation front. But the risk is that if inflation expectations become unanchored, then we could certainly have that wage expectations and all the problems with, broadly speaking, prices and wages going up too quickly could certainly become a much bigger risk, again, mainly in financial markets, but also for how people behave when they think about, do I want to buy a car? Do I want to buy a house? Am I delaying or uh, rushing up, if you will, that decision as a function of what I think prices will be doing? So that's not to say we all want incomes to go up. And in some sense, that's a different way of saying we also all want wages to go up. We all want a stable, steady economy. But the risks are now that we suddenly got this shock, then that has unfortunately created a lot of turbulence, not only to local and state government finances, as we're debating here, but uh, to the broader economy. And that's why where we will go on the inflation front will, in my view, be by far the most important factor to watch over the coming quarters. So before we go to Andy on this, can you give us your forecast on inflation for 2022 and GNP real? Absolutely. So the key issue is that inflation, the Fed's target is that inflation should be too so now you can spend a lot of time thinking about what exactly inflation measure that we talk about is a core PCE, is a core CPI, is a headline. But in, in very plain English, inflation should be two. And today it's basically between four and five, depending on which measure you look at. Because of the way inflation is measured as a 12-month window, we should expect inflation to come down over the coming year. But the consensus does not expect, and that's not my expectation either, that we come all the way down to the Fed's target of two next year. So that's why the risk is that inflation will still be elevated. As long as interest rates stay low, we should be fine on the economic outlook. But it really is the question, will we wake up the bond vigilantes? Are we going to see a risk that long rates could move higher? And if yes, what is the speed with which that happens? And what would that mean then for credit, meaning corporate bonds? What would that mean for the stock market? That all would be sort of the dominoes that we all are watching so carefully in terms of the implications of what inflation and the inflation forecast looks like from here. So, so thank you. And let's turn to Andy. Bond vigilantes and muni rates. One of your points was before that muni rates have been low, positive for state and localities. How does that all work out if we see persistent inflation and potential rises, even back to normal for muni rates? How does that affect your the trade-offs between big spending now and potential de- uh, harm to inflation and muni rates versus the long run investment in growth in the future. Andy? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I would contribute here. One is a direct follow-up to Torsten, and then I'll come back to the direct answer to the question you asked, Susan. I completely agree with Torsten and his emphasis on supply disruptions and supply chain uh, disruptions. One thing I would point out is that the New York Fed also has a survey of consumer expectations And in that survey, a very interesting phenomenon, I think, is that the one-year inflation expectations have jumped up very substantially, but three-year inflation expectations, like what's the inflation rate going to be in 2024 versus 2023, have not moved very much. And so the respondents to our survey, which is a representative survey of the U.S., generally think that inflation is a temporary phenomenon, at least so far. But that does not mean that, you know, it's nothing to worry about. We can uh, just go and have lunch. It is something we absolutely have to keep an eye on. And one of the reasons is, of course, the financial market implications, as your question emphasizes, Susan. The muni market is in, I think, very good shape by historical standards, certainly in extremely good shape in comparison with 
where it was a year and a half ago at the very beginning of the pandemic crisis. I think Carolyn alluded to this as well in her comments. I mean, I think that um, see now that rates are quite low by historical standards, spreads to treasuries are low as well. So there's, you know, the risk profile of muni debt seems to be in a pretty good place in addition to sort of the overall rate environment. The other thing I would mention is that this funding that's coming from the federal government will presumably mainly act as a complement to state and local government spending. And I, you know, I'd be interested in Carolyn's view on this. There will be federal subsidies for certain kinds of investments, and hopefully state and local governments will see those investments taking place and be able to contribute to the rest of the project or to you know, extensions of these projects. That, I think, will be sort of a kick up in the spending. That's an important phenomenon if it takes place because it'll increase this productive capacity that you refer to, Susan. The final thing I want to say is that this spending, it's a lot of money, as Annie was pointing out, but it is also the case that it will most likely spend out over many years. So it's not all going to hit the economy in the fall of 2021 or even in 2022. It's going to be spread out over a long period. And, you know, if we think about maybe $100 billion a year over the next 10 years or something along those lines to get up to a trillion, that starts to mitigate the impact that it will have on both short-term economic growth, but also um, inflationary pressures. Thank you very much. And that's exactly where I wanted to go with this last follow-on question for Carolyn, and then we'll turn it back to Bill for audience questions. Carolyn, we've heard a lot about the fiscal cliff. How does this multi-year expenditure both help and perhaps exacerbate those issues for your cities? Well, that's a, a good question. And I want to say I appreciate what Annie said in describing what's going on in, in Washington and to assure you that it's often frustrating and perplexing to try to understand what's too large, what's too small. I do remember as we came out of the Great Recession and when, when ARA was being negotiated, I think many folks and maybe some of you on this call today have looked back and said, we didn't do, do enough and we should have gone bigger with ARA at the time. Susan, thanks for the question. Certainly, you know, I'm in a state that is enjoying record surpluses and reinvesting those in many different ways. Um, but certainly for our local governments, the drivers of our local economy is very different, our local budget's very different than what is, is happening at the state. In terms of managing for potential fiscal cliffs, I think it's very good news that the ARPA dollars will be invested over time. They arrive in our communities in two tranches and cities have until 2026 to expend those funds. So we have the opportunity to make good decisions based on a longer term rather than rushing to spend them all at once in our communities. I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that, you know, the economic impacts of the pandemic largely affected our middle income and lower income workers. We saw a, a great divide in who was impacted by the pandemic. The recovery efforts being made by the state, the recovery efforts being made at the local level and the federal government are so important to getting resources and opportunities in place for those folks who were most heavily impacted by the pandemic. So to your real question, Susan, cities are very focused right now on replenishing their reserves. To the extent travel is back and folks are staying in hotels again, we have a lot of great, beautiful places that folks like to come and visit um, here in California. You know, our city leaders are being smart about restoring their reserves and making other wise investments to get us through this period of uncertainty. 
Fortunately, as it relates to the state, I mentioned earlier, the state has very different drivers than our local governments. The state may be facing some of its own fiscal cliffs in outlying years, but we've worked very hard as cities to have some constitutional protections in place that will prevent the state from borrowing or raiding or stealing, some people say, local revenues. So hopefully there are some assurances there that will help stabilize our revenues. The other thing I'd say, and I I don't think there's a conversation about local government costs in California that can be had without thinking about unfunded pension liabilities. It's a very, very real for our local budgets. And as we're seeing other costs increase, there's the potential for um, increase in unfunded pension liabilities. So certainly welcome the $8 billion in ARPA funds. The state is doing a lot to help shore up our local economies, but it's why there is still so much need for that federal investment. It has a very practical effect on our economies here in California. And also at this moment in time, because there are resources at the local level and at the state level, combined with what may be possible at the federal level, we have a really unique opportunity to leverage and unleash private sector investment that can also come to the table to move our economies forward. Very helpful. Bill, back to you. Well, thank you, Carolyn. I'm I'm glad you mentioned the fiscal cliff and the role of the state. The legislative analyst has estimated deficits of in, in the range of twenty to twenty-five billion dollars over the next several years after we get through this current boom period. And nobody has explained to me or anybody else yet how California is going to pay off its $22 billion in unemployment trust fund debt that the, the feds lent to California when the, the trust fund was broke. New York's got $9 billion. Texas has $6 billion. California is not the only big borrower. I realize there are certain constitutional constraints in place, but California has in the past held up local aid. I mean, what is the risk that the local aid you're getting from Sacramento trails off just as the last of the ARPA money gets spent? And as Andy mentioned, if there's going to be a Build Back Better bill or an infrastructure bill, this is very long term and is going to require local participation as well. Other than building reserves, what do you do about this? I wish, Bill, that I had a better crystal ball, but I I would say that that's why there is so much focus now at the local level for getting our economies rebuilt using the resources we have through ARPA to make some transformative investments that will help buffer us against what may happen at the state in the outlying years. I wish I had a better crystal ball on it. Oh, that's fine. And one one quick follow-up about the inflation discussion we had just a little earlier. Are your members seeing wage pressures in negotiations and upcoming negotiations right now? State is flush. The Cities are cities are relatively flush. I realize that we're, as you said, we're still way down in state and local employment, including schools. But are you seeing any wage pressures right now? I've seen um, Bill wage pressure in all sectors across our economies here, and I I couple it with getting our workers back to work. I mean, I think what we're experiencing in so many communities across the country is that we have jobs, but we don't necessarily have the workforce either choosing those jobs or wanting to return back to work in the old way. We are truly in a moment where I think how we work and the places from which we work will look very different in 2023 than what they did in 2019. And I think that puts the employees 
perhaps our workforce in a little different negotiating position than they may have been pre-pandemic. And I think a natural outgrowth of that is going to be wage pressure. Quickly, Annie, you you brought up some short-term milestones that Joe Biden and the Biden administration have to overcome. And then we have the long-term, more existential milestones, the 2022 congressional midterms and inflation as a medium to longer-term issue. So how is this administration going to confront all these short, medium, and long-term existential crises? It seems like a big menu. Uh, well, that's a very, very big question, and one that we should probably be putting to Ron Klain, uh, the White House Chief of Staff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, it's the way that the Biden, the sort of nascent Biden administration has sort of been organized for the, its first, you know, 10 months, I think is instructive to that, which is they set a goal, they kind of put their head down, they do a very good job, perhaps too good of a job, you might, some might say, at ignoring distractions. And their plan has been clear, which is they want to show America that democracy can work. And that is sort of the kind of underlying, you know, that's what's generating the president as he goes into these negotiations. He's not the kind of person who's going to say, I'm going to walk away from this if, you know, community college is not a piece of it, or I'm going to walk away from it if the child tax credit is not extended. He wants to get to yes. And the reason he wants to get to yes is because he has described this moment in American history as an existential threat to our democracy and our way of governance. This is an argument that he has made internally to members of Congress. He makes it to us in the press corps. And when he is on the world stage, he's going to make it at the G20 and at COP26, the climate summit that he'll be traveling to, we're taking off next week, I believe. You know, that's what underpins him. And I think it's just useful to think back, like that is what's motivating him every day. And you can argue whether it's going to really work if inflation is a, is a threat to it. I think what Andrew said is quite interesting that Perhaps the the surveying is saying that that inflation might not be there when he's up for re-election again. But that's kind of where their eyes are. One thing that you don't want to see drop from the bill, the one thing you want to make sure that's there. Torsten, just one word. I don't have any views on what's in the bill. <laughs> and I, I mean, okay. think about the macro, so I'll pass it on him. Okay, Andrew, do you? Yeah, I'm not going to help much here either. Sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, then I'm going, to, I'm going to turn to Carolyn. I bet you do. Well, Susan, I love all of my children. So investments in broadband, transportation, water, and our human capital. And with that, we are at the top of the hour. I want to thank everybody, our great panelists. Susan, thank you for joining us. Here's your contacts. And this will be on the archived site as well at VolkerAlliance.org and at the Penn IUR website too. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.